Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, welcome to the conversation. We're glad to have you back with us for another Common Ground Unity Podcast. Um, we're going to introduce a guest that I'm excited to talk about today. He's going to take us back into some uh, history that has a lot of relevance for who we are today and ministry today. So I'll, I'll introduce him in just a moment. But first, I want to say at the top of our podcast today, uh, John Teal, who is our podcast producer and the Commons Ground uh, Unity president, he asked me to communicate that, that after a period of time of, of discernment with God, uh, discernment with our board and a number of spiritual advisors, we've decided to end the Common Grounds Unity Patreon channel. Uh, John, he expresses an apology for what uh, he considers a drift from our mission, which primarily is to create spaces for Christians to gather so that we may recognize Jesus in one another. And we're still thrilled about that mission, and that's at the core of who we are and what we do. But he wrote a letter, if you were a Patreon subscriber, uh, you would have read that he he shared what had been a concern of his that creating content to raise capital for the sustainability of our organization um, was taking energy and time away from that primary mission. Two of our core values are to grow and function organically and to the best of our ability to give away uh, what what we do, the work that we do here. So this move is going to help us improve the quality of the free content we offer and it will allow us to better focus and, and manage our mission. So if you're a Common Ground Unity Patreon subscriber, you would have received that email. Um, if you'd like a refund, you can email john at commongroundunity.org. If you're benefiting from this ministry and want to continue supporting us, please go to www.commongroundunity.org front slash donate. And we'd love to have your help and support. It does cost, even though uh, John and I both, and Tina as well, are volunteers as far as all of our time and energy. There are costs associated with growing this ministry, so we'd love to have you as a partner and supporter in that. There is a link to John's letter that he sent out to supporters in the show notes, so you'll find it there. Now I want to introduce our guest today. Steve Staten is with us, and Steve is a trainer, speaker, and organizational health consultant. His early professional life began at Fermilab, working as an engineer with high-energy sound radar and computer design. Back in 1988, Steve and his wife, Tricia, went into ministry full-time, acquiring over 25 years of experience in church leadership. He has a master's in theology from Wheaton College and a master's in conflict management from Lipscomb University. He's certified with a safety risk management method and philosophy called Just Culture, and he published The Art of Breakthrough, collaborating on audacious undertakings. Steve also serves as an editorial advisor for the Teleos Journal. Steve and his wife, Tricia, live in North Carolina. They have three daughters, three sons-in-law, and five grandchildren. Steve, welcome to the podcast today. We're glad to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great honor. I appreciate it very much. Steve, why don't you kick off our conversation by sharing a little bit about your life, your your spiritual journey, and your ministry career? Yeah, I grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, my senior year, I went through a very serious like self-reflection, kind of did an inventory, and uh, I got door-knocked a couple times, first by Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, second by Church of Christ. <laughs> and uh, that turned out to be fantastic because of I jumped into the Gospels. Marty Fuquay studied the Bible with me. He's well known in some circles. And uh, it, for me, it was transformative. I had prayed Jesus in my heart four times as part of the ecumenical movement. And 
and that was good. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was not transformative. So that was 1981. Since then, I've been an engineer, a minister uh, who served 25 years in various roles in the Midwest. 15 years in, uh, in 2003, I engaged in a congregational crisis, followed by further education at Lipscomb University. In uh, the last 10 years, I've been working as a congregational consultant, often with my wife for about half of our engagements. And between being an engineer and some high stakes uh, applications, love for ministry and a decade of consulting, um, I'm looking to, to apply some of the engineering concepts to reverse engineer problems. So I'm studying in a tier, two-year project, Kevin, 12 megachurches, movements, and faith associations that have had a crisis in the lifetime of their founder to see if those uh, troubles can be reverse engineered and transformed into lessons learned, broadly and widely circulated. And uh, I'm, a, I'm about a fourth of the way through that project. Well, we will be very interested to talk to you at the completion of that project and, uh, and learn more about that. That sounds fascinating and like good things that could really be useful to church leaderships. So, but we're here to talk to you. You're currently working on several projects, I understand. But but the one that we're going to be talking about today is your uh, your work in the area of campus evangelism and its history and our movement. So, you know, talk if you would about this movement, the the work you're you're doing, and then why you think this is an important story to tell. So as of right now, the campus evangelism story, the first one in my twelve study is an outlier. And I've been looking for reoccurring themes of, uh, among these great undertakings into the unknown, the biggest, the fastest, the greatest, the place where no one has gone before. And this one alone looks like at this point has really no scandal. And the staff of this movement slash organization never got larger than three. And the leaders openly went to their critics. They seemed to be very self-reflective and they balanced courage with humility. So a little bit of background here. So in 1965 at Abilene Christian College, there was a speech kind of like the lost frontier by uh, Wesley Reagan, basically saying that if we send kids only to Christian universities, or to secular universities where there's a, a Bible chair program that keeps them hemmed in through classes and playing pool and fellowship. We're not obeying the gospel uh, the, or the Great Commission going into all nations. So that challenge was interesting in those times because this is part of the countercultural revolution era. And it was basically saying that we should be sending our kids out there. And that enlivened a lot of people. And the Broadway Church in Lubbock, Texas, took it to heart. And they allowed two of their staff members, Jim Beavis and Rex Vermillion, to uh, investigate, do research as to what could happen, even studying like the uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and other endeavors to see what could happen within the churches of Christ. And as a result, they changed I would say they challenge the status quo. So that's kind of the the story there. So there was there were some roots there in the early Bible chair movement of with a critique, of perhaps that serving too much the the Christian community rather than being an evangelistic uh, thrust. And uh, well, that that is interesting history. Those, uh, those congregational names and those uh, individuals' names are familiar to me. I was just a teenager back in, in those years. Talk to us about the culture and times and the appeal of campus evangelism that reached 35,000 to 40,000 students on about 400 campuses. And, and are there some similarities to our current times and our culture? Yeah, and, and what's a little bit embarrassing, I learned about this story about five years ago from a kid in the Chicago Church of Christ called Cameron 
uh, logger, and and I never heard this. I just heard snippets, and so I called up Jim Beavis, and my life has changed because of that phone call. It's like, wow, here's a better origin story than I've ever known for where I came from it related to my baptism and so forth. So here's what I've learned. So 1960, early uh, 60, was the beginning of the first renewal movement in the denominational world. There was a charismatic renewal. There was the Jesus Revolution. There was the Asbury Revivals, 1970. And this was the one that uh, was focused on the churches of Christ only. So from 1958 to 1974 is called the, the 60s, even though it's technically not accurate, but that is the countercultural revolutionary period. So, um, but this one was particular to the churches of Christ, but what made it unique is that debates and uh, serious concerns over the last 70 or 80 years in the churches of Christ were never part of the conversation with the younger generation. So it could be uh, who's a Christian, what's a denomination, the role of the Holy Spirit, follow the plan or follow the man, which meant the five steps, you know, hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized, or focus on Jesus. Uh, all those things were not uh, purview of young believers in the churches of Christ. Well, the, the times changed that. So campus evangelism became a vehicle for creating that conversation with campus students. They weren't campus evangelism guys. Jim Beavis and Rex were not trying to take a stab at the churches of Christ, but by creating a vehicle on campuses, specifically uh, with two major pilots, one in Lubbock and one in Florida starting in 67, that's what happened. And they had two major national conferences, 66 and 68, that ended up giving a platform for young people to weigh in on those debates. And that created a major stir. Jim Beavis, he talks about the change agent doctrine of grace and the Holy Spirit. Um, did, did this focus simultaneously bring about renewal and opposition? It's a good question, Kevin. So this, you know, these kind of uh, events don't happen through the schemes of man and the plans that you wouldn't know at a given point, oh, this is what's now going to happen. So, for instance, when the Broadway church empowered Jim Beavis and another man from his other congregation in the South to go study with Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, how they do campus work, you know, and so forth, that created something that nobody anticipated. So the Churches of Christ had their, you know, five-step plan of salvation. It was very transactional. And a lot of people that experienced that later would say, I did this because I was baptized because I was supposed to. The altar call came. The preacher preached a lesson. I turned 12. I turned 13 years old. That was the thing to do. And then Bill Bright, who had introduced like around 1963, 64, the four spiritual laws, which has a couple flaws in it, but it landed on one thing pretty good. And that is the emphasis of a relationship with God, a relationship with Christ and the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. So when those two uh, limited paradigms met each other in the campus evangelism movement, starting in 66, because uh, Beva spent six weeks with Bill Bright. What that turned out to be is a plan of salvation with the man of salvation and a new view of the Holy Spirit, because at that time, the Churches of Christ viewed the Holy Spirit as a thing that retired when the canon was formed. You know, the Holy Spirit is only active when the word is open. They would say the word, you know, it's usually King James, right? So 
Yes. But when you merge the these word things, only idea. Yeah, yeah. But when you merge these things, uh, is there's studying the Bible to become a Christian, it's not only transactional, it's relational, it's empowering, and doors start to open. So that was a huge thing that took place. And then in the the first event in 66 and also in 68, the national event, there would be these labs. So you have a speech, you have a class, and eventually were labs. And these were kids would get together and they would talk about the Bible. And by the way, this was young men and young women. That was a paradigm shift because that was, and, and women would give their testimonies or ask questions or challenge or whatever. That was very different. That was quite a shift at that time. So the, the, the Holy Spirit, a bit of a grace awakening, a greater focus on, on Jesus as the, the means of our salvation, the person who saves rather than a kind of a stair-step plan. Uh, that, th- th- those were some pretty charged times with uh, a number of big issues on the table. Yeah. And, uh, and I recall those conversations in the church of my upbringing. Um, it's interesting how we have weathered, we weathered some of those better than others. Uh, you know, we, we were a primarily word-only group for so long. And then uh, it became very common to hold a personal indwelling view of the spirit. And that didn't seem to split us like some of the other things that came down the pike. Well, that's an interesting history, uh, Steve. Uh, And also just theologically, an interesting discussion about where we were and perhaps where we've come to. In In an Abilene Christian University audio file, and there's a link to this for our listeners in the show notes, Jim Beavis talks about what went right and and what he feels went wrong. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. Sure. So uh, one point that I should have mentioned earlier. So the Churches of Christ, 75% of all Church of Christ members were in 11 U.S. states, and they were all South. And there's major segregation issues and, and racial issues and so forth. So these themes would come up not only in speeches and classes, but also in conversations with the kids. And then they would go home and talk to their parents and their preacher and say, hey, did you know we're a denomination and we're against racism and blacks and whites should be worshiping together? So between 66 and 68, things went to all white meetings with a few women to a lot of men and women and, and, and blacks and whites. And that was a, a big change. So that's kind of the backstory to what went right and what went wrong. These were not planned. They weren't scripted challenges. They were organically kids talking, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, saying, hey, here's what we believe, you know, and and that unnerved quite a bit of the establishment. So, Later on, when we look about uh, what Beavis said, I would say a couple of things. Um, The kids cared about social issues from a biblical perspective. And these were not topics. It's not just about the churches of Christ. This was really, this was where a lot of the older denominations were at. And, but particular to the kids, they were saying the churches of Christ are not the only Christians. And there's kind of an old, very uh, sad joke that gets told a lot between the 1950s and 60s. You know, somebody dies, goes to heaven, an angel takes them on a tour, and there's a group in the corner who's meeting. Shh, don't talk to them. They're the Church of Christ. They think they're the only ones here. That that was a huge yes, thing. heard it and told it. Yeah. <laughs> And that became even part of the debate in, the, in an open forum that we'll talk about in a moment in Henderson, Tennessee. This exclusivism was challenged. So these are the kind of things that what, I think that went right. That's what went right. They addressed social issues. We're not the only Christians on the planet. And we reached out to all sorts of people, hippies, our peers that were different. We you know, engaged even with people from outside of our uh, fellowship, that was all good. 
I would say this campus evangelism would do some things differently if we could go back in time. They would have worked further with the endeavor of the Bible chairs who had a six-year lead on stepping into secular campuses to take care of kids from the churches of Christ. And there were about 50 Bible chairs. Uh, and that's not a lot because there were over 2,000 campuses that were secular in the nation at that time. Um, when they sent some of the elders at the Broadway church in 69, were not super supportive, afraid of the controversy. They chose another congregation to kind of make their headquarters, the Burke Road Church of Christ in Pasadena, Texas. And that was not a good choice because that congregation had kind of their own firestorm at the time. And then I think, and, and I've shared this with the men, that if they had a formal, widely publicized statement to answer the charges that were coming at them in early 69, and there were about 40 of them, and they, some of them were just jokes. They were ridiculous. Uh, we heard you tried to raise a cat from the dead. You don't believe in King James only. A bunch of stuff like that. But if they had got on the frontal approach to say, this is what we believe, and this is what we want our speakers and our teachers and our students to learn, that would have been helpful. But that's not what happened. It became very intense in early 69. And that, that leads us maybe to a discussion of the open forum at Freed Hardeman um, at that time that you referenced a few moments ago. Talk, talk a little bit about that. What happened there? So there's a longstanding tradition at Freed Hardeman College at the time. It's now a university. And by the way, nothing I say you should judge Freed Hardeman uh, today through what happened back then. It's a different animal. I know a number of people have gone to college since that time. But I want to put that out there before I say what's happened. The tradition to have an open forum, which back, went back a couple decades, where Guy N. Woods was a, the moderator. He had a legal background training in Texas and Tennessee as an attorney. He was not a practicing attorney, but he had a very litigious, very uh, case study, patternistic view of the Bible and topics Uh so people look forward to these events because he would crush the opposition or really handle the topic as the winner of, of a debate. But what had happened, Kevin, was uh, as a result of the December 68 campus evangelism event with 1,300 people present in Texas, these kids went home, talked to their preachers, talked to their parents, 40 of these, you know, complaints came, not from the kids, but came from those congregations to Freed Hardeman, Ira Rice, and Guy N. Woods. Uh, there were three publications that kind of were for campus evangelism or objective or positive or hopeful, but there were three that were super negative against, and Ira and uh, Guy represented two of those. So, what happened in January of 69 is a bunch of articles came out on both sides taking their stand for or against. The downside of that is campus evangelism became a mascot for those who didn't like the militant conservatives. And they put campus evangelism in the crosshairs who weren't trying to be controversial, weren't trying to pick a fight. They weren't trying to kill the sacred cows. But along the way, you kind of have to tackle some of them. So on, this is very interesting. So on February the 6th, 1969, um, a campus minister, I think his name is Ellis Coates, comes back home after the lectureship and, and to Florence, Alabama, calls up. 21-year-old Tom Jones and says, let me tell you what happened. And tomorrow they're going to go after campus evangelism at the open forum. That's the debate this year. So Tom said, well, Ellis, you should talk, call campus evangelism. So Coates calls Jim Beavis. Jim talks to the other two guys, Charles Shelton and Rex Vermillion. They call up Dudley Lynch, the editor 
of Christian Chronicle, who's in Abilene. All four of them get in a plane. They go to Memphis. They meet up, drive in a car to Henderson, Tennessee. Meanwhile, Ellis and Tom get in a car, go back. They end up meeting those four guys at the same restaurant prior. And I think two tables next to each other. And they end up, you know, come up with the plan. Charles will be the person if there's an opportunity to speak in defense of campus evangelism. So they get to the meeting and the power brokers don't even know that they're coming. Uh, And Charles was selected by the guys because he was from Tennessee and he knew some of the people there. And it was a very, very contentious meeting. At this time, we'd like to share an audio clip of Jim and Ann Beavis at the 2008 ACU Lecture and Summit, giving context to what follows. And there were, as I recall, some 40 charges made against us that we had to answer. And as I also recall, we were guilty of 39 of them. And the 40th one they had attributed to us that somebody else had done. One of them was, I'm just going to mention two or three of them. One of them was, is it true you guys tried to raise a cat from the dead? Another one was, is it true that at a youth meeting in Memphis, Tennessee, you sang the battle hymn of the Republic? A third one was, is it true that you read out of today's English version of the New Testament in your meetings rather than the King James Version? Well, that'll give you the drift of the charges that were made. But explain, in the 60s, a lot of the uh, um, talk, a lot of the slang language was, they'd use things like, oh, that cat over there, you know, talking about a guy or, or someone. And, and this young man who had uh, been saved and experienced um, his... Uh, relationship with the Lord and baptized, he came up to give his testimony and he said, you know that cat who was raised from the dead? He was talking about Jesus. And he used that slang um, language of the day and the religious literally took it as a cat. It took us years to, <laughs> it took us years to find out where that rumor started. Because they actually thought we'd taken a, a cat and, and laid hands yeah. on it and tried to resurrect it. But it started, somebody told us later, said, I was in the class in Dallas where this hippie guy that had come to Jesus made reference to Jesus as a cat. So that's what they thought they were coming in with. Okay. But the actual tack- talking points were... I think from the kids that came to the conference in, in December, the Church of Christ is a denomination. There are many groups meeting and worshiping God through Christ who do not call themselves the Church of Christ. The belief in the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. Anyone who does not believe in miracles is nothing but a rank materialist. This was a quote. Those who teach that the sinner must hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized were called five-steppers. And I have no trouble harmonizing the science of evolution in the Bible. So those were the talking points that were part of the one-hour open forum in front of 900 people, kind of a courtroom setting. And, and did these others that having heard that this was going to take place, ever have an opportunity for response in that forum? So events, you know, early on, Guy and Woods learned that uh, there was a spokesperson, so he allowed Cheryl Shelton uh, to respond. And uh, in this hour meeting, I think 35 minutes of audio has been uh, recovered. I've been looking for the full hour, have not found it. Some of it ended up in articles and books and so forth. So it it did end up turning into a kind of a debate. And uh, Shelton was on the hot seat and he did a magnificent job. And the audio is available. I'll make that more widely circulated myself. But at the end of it, going through all these issues, um, 
the men left feeling uh, not safe. Microphones were shoved into their faces. People yelled at them. They felt like somebody could pick up stones and throw them at them. And it was super intense. The phrases that they gave was, there's a ruling bishop. There was a mob spirit, the most hostile situation that I've ever been in. And what's interesting, Kevin, is that Ann Beavis, Ann Beavis has an interesting backstory. Her and her sister were part of the Wagden sisters back in the late 50s. They got on the Ed Sullivan show. And when they were in an Ed Sullivan show one night, Jim Beavis saw them on a Sunday night and identified one of them that he wanted to marry, pursued her, and 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 they were married, okay? So Anne is charismatic. Well, there, there's quite a story there. There is quite a story. There is, and, there, and that's in his <laughs> biography, but... Uh, anyway, she's a wonderful lady, uh, very dynamic, but there was a place in time years later that someone came up to her and said, I want to apologize to you on behalf of your husband. If there were rocks that day, I would have thrown them. We were mm. you know, really worked up and he was in tears and she was gracious. All mm-hmm. three men received apologies at different times and different places from individuals associated with that event. But the language used by some of the men and Anne and this individual made us all think of Acts chapter seven with Stephen. Mm-hmm. Mm. Boy, that's painful to hear. It, it's, it's painful, Kevin, but I'll tell you having done a uh, recording of these six people for a documentary that we want to make. This was recordings at the end of May. There's not a bitter bone in any of these people's bodies. They see God in the story. Um, We had some tears um, for sure, but it wasn't tears of, I feel like I'm a victim. It's they know they had a major impact in nudging uh, sectarianism and creating a space for conversations for young people. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it's a good story in the end. Yeah. Yeah. The, the plowing was tough, but they plowed some good soil that led to some good, good conversations, even like ones we're having today. Right. That were more difficult to have 30, 40 years ago. Right. Steve, talk to us about the contributors to the closing, if we could use that term, of of campus evangelism. I would say um, they were concerned that their work would have uh, cause a division. I personally think the men, uh, especially uh, Jim and Charles, had some trauma. Rex was in a a pre-planned transition right after the open forum because of family and a job uh, that he was already planning to take. So he wasn't as much affected, but there's some trauma. There were too few people that would stand up to the diatrophies kind of characters. So they felt alone at times. Bill Banowski, who was the main leader of the Broadway church had the year before taken a position of Pepperdine. So they, and he was, a huge figure in the churches and became a huge figure, figure of Pepperdine, mm-hmm. but he wasn't there to be part of making them, you know, being part of the backbone to make them feel safe back at Broadway. And then they made a choice to move to Pasadena, Texas, which was not good in the end, but even th- I think they did a noble thing by quitting. I think it, it, not that, that this is what they should have done. We don't know what God, the Holy Spirit, would say about all this sort of thing. But there weren't a lot of clear alternatives. And they had done something that was going to live on even when they closed shop. So that's my take on it. Mm-hmm. 
And that, that that's that's kind of the next chapter of that story, right? Yeah, yeah. How, how uh, campus evangelism continued, but but kind of in a different form. Must have been quite an experience, kind of getting to know the three couples who founded and, and led uh, campus evangelism, uh, the Beavises, the Vermilions, the Sheltons. Um, talk to us a little bit about that experience. So not all, we had uh, a Tuesday to Thursday or Friday experience at the end of May and early June. And a whole day and a half was recordings. And then in between, we'd have conversations. We would have meals. And then even before and after, we had some private conversations. It's going to end up in some things that I'm writing. Uh, it was just moving. Um, and they asked me to be part of the honorary campus evangelism entity. They said, you know more about us than we know about ourselves. You know, So I'm like, I, that's a big compliment because <laughs> I respect these folks, uh, the husbands and wives. The wives carried a lot of family loads for what was going on. They couldn't attend all the events, but they dealt with the implications and uh, some really wonderful people. I'm on text and emails with them every week. Uh, we get caught up. I run buy them some things I'm going to be doing for the forthcoming documentary and a slide presentation I'm creating. And so I feel like I have another community, of very special people. And, and you know what? They're in their upper eighties. So to see Charles Shelton, who's I think just recently turned 89 say in front of the camera, uh, and you'll see this at some point, he says, the church of Christ was racist. And it was, by the way, <laughs> not everybody, of course, not every church. Not every, it wasn't uh, systemic to the whole place, but that's what they were dealing with. And yes. I, just it's so honorable to hear somebody at that age having conviction. In, in, but I heard him in his 30s on the open forum. He's the same guy. His voice doesn't sound even... 50 years older he's you know the, the same person it was, it was fantastic so yeah so it was awesome who, who were some others that kind of inspired you during this whole process who were perhaps had some prominence during those times and uh, the one of the most popular speakers is john allen shock and he uh did the herald of truth radio program with the Highland Church in Texas. He was amazing. I've had email correspondence with him. Uh, Bill Manowski, of course, he did two major debates, one with uh, somebody in the Playboy organization. Uh, Hugh Hefner would not debate him, but he gave a deputy. And Manowski, in a crowd of over 3,000 people at Texas Tech, uh, creamed him. Not, not for the purpose of creaming him, but mm -hmm. creaming him on the topic. Uh, he debated Bishop Pike. Didn't do as well. That was in California because of the crowd in California, but he did well on the topics. And then uh, Andrew Harrison, an African-American preacher. He was not part of Campus Evangelism, but spoke at one of their conferences. And he went on to be a major litigator and force in Atlanta, a preacher for around five decades. He's still alive. His wife recently passed away. Huge personality in 1968. He kicked off uh, very gracious race conversations, the blacks and whites and the churches of Christ and has been a voice for that. Um, I would say those are the three that stick out. Well, you mentioned John Allen Chalk. I think he was very influential in uh, opening up people's minds and hearts to the concept of the Holy Spirit's indwelling uh, yeah. the believer. And I think one of the early sermons I'd heard was one, uh, it, Pepperdine lectures back during that era that really opened my thinking up to uh, to the Spirit's work in us. So uh, names that, boy, they, they, they have a, a, a some wonderful places in the hearts of so many people and, and perhaps haven't been talked about in a number of years. So thanks for raising these back into our consciousness. And uh, some of them are still ministering yeah, uh, just actively. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about institutional resistance for a few moments. Obviously, a, a clash with the establishment contributed or, or caused the end of a movement that now, looking back, was ahead of its time. What are some of the lessons for us out of that? I think we can break down institutional resistance into categories. So there's 
multiple places for it. There's the campus evangelism. There's the, the churches of Christ at the time. And, you know, 50 years later, application to modern uh, churches, their universities, journals, uh, and so forth, and even the youth. So I would say with the churches of Christ, there was no agreed upon mechanism for moderating issues. And that's not about the churches of Christ. That's about all um, autonomous entities. So especially when there's a hyper autonomy. So like, you know, we're all on our own. So, well, what about when there's something that arises? So that becomes an issue. And as I'm studying these 12 megachurches movements and faith associations, this is not the only place where that occurs. So the question begins to be, well, in the early church, how autonomous were they? Was there intradependence and interdependence and association and an understanding and when we get to a problem, what do we do? There was not the space in the 1960s in the churches of Christ because of the more militant on one side and disillusioned on the other end. And we, and then there's people in between that most of the churches were in between, but the voices were pretty intense on both extremes. So what do you do? There was not a mechanism. So I, you know, and that allows the room for a diatrophies type figure, Second John, a veiled Sanhedrin, uh, what is called editor bishops, and that are uh, or has been described in some publications as those who are leading journals whose voice are so big. They have funding behind them usually in a uh, ecosystem of churches that say, you are our guy, you're our voice. We'll pump money into you to be spokesman for this side or the other. And, you know, by the 1970s, the language wasn't conservative versus progressives or liberals. It was conservatives versus digressives. I mean, it was really intense. And there was not a space to yes. have uh, a conversation without being labeled even a heretic. So um, that's pretty intense. And so I even think today, so we're in 2023. If you don't have an objective mechanism, a covenant, a agreed upon process, the most intimidating figures will win the conversation. If they're pugnacious, bullying, intense, doesn't matter if they're left or right, doesn't matter what the topics are. But if they're aggressive and there's no way to hem them in, uh, those control the conversation. And people kind of go, they kind of back down, you know. They may have their private view of what they believe, but they're not going to, you know, jump into the foray of, of things. So that's, that's a lesson. For universities, there's a Socratic method, right, which is a cooperative dialogue between individuals, even if there's debate, where you answer questions and you stimulate critical thinking and you challenge underlying assumptions. And uh, that's part of the learning process. But instead, back then, it was a heresy trial. Ira Rice used the word heresy in the open forum. It's on the audio. Uh, it's scary what he was doing. It felt like an inquisition. That was associated with Fried Hardeman at that time. Even though it was at the Henderson Church of Christ, it was part of the calendar for the yearly calendar. There was no Socratic method, no critical thinking, no open dialogue, no pre-planned, let's have a discussion. We invite you to talk. Here's the topic, you know, this the points in advance. Uh, involve your elders. No, it was a trial. So I think that's a lesson. It doesn't end well. It just doesn't end well. So lessons for the journals and publications. Uh, they should not be around the beliefs of a few wealthy donors or self-appointed watchdogs. There should be peer review, welcome of opposing thoughts, within reason, of course, and allowing for respectful debate. And respectful debate has happened in the last few hundred years of Christianity 
in different cultures and times. It wasn't what we were dealing with uh, at this point in time. Now, the lessons for young people and uh, are, you know, for us today. So I would say, so I asked the guys back in May, what would you, if you were, you know, if this was the last time you had a voice, what would, would you want to say to young people? And it was basically talk about anything you want to talk about, but show respect. And I think that's really important. Respect goes both ways, right? It's respect is so important. Mm -hmm. Social media uh, amplifies voices. And if younger people don't feel respected over a period of time, they get worn down. That becomes, uh, becomes a platform for them. And out of exasperation, things are said and done that are not helpful, right? So uh, that was their thing, show respect. Uh, and, and these men, when they said this in the video uh, interviews that we did, they were young men. They were what we would call today millennials, you know. So I think, but mm -hmm. respect goes both ways. And uh, there was a big power differential back then as there is today. The preachers have the pulpit, leaders make decisions, they plan the conferences, they run the journals and so forth. And young people, if, if we don't give them a seat at the table, engage with them in a formal way, uh, they're going to find another way to speak into things. Let's talk a little bit about other lessons and, uh, and takeaways. Um, for me, as a 64-year-old person who became a Christian in 1981, campus evangelism has given me a better story. Uh, and I would want to pivot my beginning of what I identify with, not with the International Church of Christ alone, not with the Boston movement alone, not with cross, the discipling movement, not with the crossroads movement alone, but the bigger Christian stream. And I so deeply appreciate what happened in the 1960s in our stream locally, our wing, uh, that was had seeds of ecumenicalism, had seeds of critical thinking, being part of the conversation, was willing, they were willing to challenge things, but that wasn't why they were existed. They were just willing to do it along the way. They weren't trying to kill sacred cows. They weren't trying to fillet them, but they wanted to milk them. <laughs> you know, wanted to be able to start some sort of conversation. And I so appreciate that. And so I think there's something to be said of redialing your origin story and appreciating the greater Christian community outside of the one that you're in. Because even though, I, you know, if I were to meet Bill Bright today, who died in 2003, who had his own uh, reflections before he ended, I think he saw he was contributing to an easy believism thing. That wasn't who he was, but he contributed to it. I would want to honor him and I would want to say, I want to shake his hand and give him a hug, say, thank you. You made my life better by introducing some things that we were missing in the churches of Christ. And I just want to say thank you. And I think we've got to build bridges and welcome people in to our ecosystem outside of our tradition. Mm. Mm. That's good stuff. Um, Steve, uh, w when you look at those times, and we talked about institutional resistance, um, do you think that's just historically common to the human experience? And then when you think about what happened with campus evangelism, uh, how would you kind of connect that to some parallels that we might find in the church today, kind of what you're looking at currently? So each of our... Uh, tribes have uh, conversations that need to be had. 
And the one that I've been most associated with, the International Churches of Christ, has this idea of one leadership per city, one church per city, uh, and it usually evolves around one person who sometimes inadvertently hand-selects their boards, hand-selects their elderships. And I think we got to take a good look. Does that come from the Bible? Does it come from the early churches? Does that come from Watchman Nee? I mean, there's, I think we got to say, is this, does this come from Kit McKean? Um, and take a good look at to see the origin stories of these ideas. Uh, and when you have these conversations, Kevin, you can tell if you're dealing with somebody who really is curious and responsive, they'll be like, unpack that for me. Let's talk about it. What should I read? Where did this come from? Thank you. Or it'll be like, okay, that's the last we hear from you. <laughs> that's kind of the thing, you know, and, but it's, right. that's just, that's just an example. There's multiple versions of uh, topics that are, uh, they're too sacred. An elephant in the room or sacred cow. We're not going to go there. That's, that's too divisive. That'll rock the boat. That'll cause us problems. And our contributions will go down and people won't be happy and we won't be able to be unified and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So, Yeah, it's interesting that, that we come to that uh, in, in all streams of our movement. When we were a, a movement that, you know, in its origination was made up of people who were telling people to challenge their denominational authorities, question their assumptions about their traditions, take it back to scripture, you know, and and it just seems that all of this conversation takes us back to the need for all of us to question our, our assumptions and our practices and to differentiate between, you know, what what are the the sacred roots? What what are the the pieces of this that come to us from a clear understanding of scripture and then where where has our own influence in that and the influence of prominent figures or personalities or just interpretive models um, moved us to practices that we've just accepted as as they must be somewhere in scripture, we wouldn't be doing them. So I think this is a healthy conversation. We we were some of the uh, original ones to, to challenge the institutions, right? Right. And sometimes our institutions become as strong as those that we once urged others to challenge. So, right. I think that takes us to a good place. Steve, it's been a great conversation. I, I look forward to seeing more of your research finished products, this other project you're on, having you back to talk about that. Um, before we kind of move in a little bit, maybe just a fun direction to let our listeners get to know you a little bit more um, at a more personal level, is there anything else you'd like to share? Any other takeaways from your research that you think... Boy, I really want to say this. We'd love to give you the opportunity to do that. Well, one of the reoccurring themes of my research so far is that there are um, inner circles, inner rings, as C.S. Lewis would call it, that kind of control the the narrative, the belief systems of our cultures. And, and, and these are not uh, sinister. These are just what happens. We are complicit sometimes in creating a celebrity culture where we go, oh, that man, he's so amazing. He's so inspiring. I'm going to take my kids to hear him. And that person may contribute sometimes in the realm of music or books or just stage presence. And we are contributing to that. It's not just about them. We shouldn't demonize the person that we've lifted up and look for our role in it. So there is the inner ring. There's also our role in lifting those people up. First Samuel 8 is almost like a predictor of this scenario. Well, we want a king. We want somebody to like, and we want somebody to love to celebrate. And then, you know, there's warnings in there on that. So there's that, that kind of piece is huge. I would say another piece, Kevin, is uh, the, the absence of governance, the absence of clear governance, uh, or hand-selected people that run the governance and so, so far I've studied the Campus Evangelism, Crystal Cathedral Ministries, First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, the largest church at the nation at the time, 
this back in the 70s and 80s. Now I'm into shepherding movement. Yeah. I'll eventually move into the, the Crossroads movement, the mm-hmm. ICOC, Acts 29, Mars Hill, uh, Harvest Bible Chapel, Hillsong, and the rest. Uh, not most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, they there's a, a wonderfulness, the audacity. When it would be great, we want to do big things. We want to be first. We want to do what's not been done before. You know, this is the age of Apollo that a lot of this these movements were born in. But there needs to be controls and mechanisms and safeties and fail-safes. And, uh, and that's lacked the last 60 years. So that'll be the kind of things we'll talk about in the future. I'll look forward to that, Steve. Well, let's, let's have a little fun. Um, a little lightning round. Can I throw a few questions your way? Sure. All right. What's your favorite junk food? Just cashews. Is that, that's not junk food, is it? I, I don't eat junk food. Now, now that is healthy, Steve. Okay, so can I say I don't, I don't well, eat junk I, food? Now that's good to hear. Well, don't ask me about pies or cakes yeah, either. That's a good answer. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm not even going to go there. Okay, good. Give me. Uh, what one. are a few of your all-time favorite movies? Okay, Mortal Storm, Mortal Storm, Jimmy Stewart, Best Years of Our Lives, Foreign Correspondent, oh, man. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Saving Private Ryan, and Where Eagles Dare. By the way, those are all World War II movies. That's my space. So yeah, yeah. Common thread there. You're you're a historian guy. I'm a nut. I'm a nerd. And war history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm a, a war, war history of America and maybe maybe some wars in the church, right? Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, what's one subject if, if you could just plow into it? What is one subject you'd like to learn more about? It'd probably be neurology, how our body works, because I think there's insight for how the church body works. So the, uh, our neurosystem. Um, so anyway, that's a, that might be a weird answer, but I've been thinking about that quite a bit lately. Yeah, not in the least. I, <laughs> uh, what is your favorite music genre? Movie scores. John Williams. Movie James, scores. James Horner. Yeah, yeah, just scores for... Because here's the cool thing. When after you've love the movie you've taken it in you appreciate it you get in the car and you get to take it with you yeah absolutely that's good well steve it has been a lot of fun and this has been a fascinating discussion and i think there are a lot of uh, things to be uh, thoughtful about as people reflect on your you're taking many of us back to a, a time this this was kind of pre uh, my own ministry years. I got started in ministry in the mid eighties, was very involved in the life of the church in the seventies as a teenager. So some of these conversations, you know, I'd, I'd pick up copies of the gospel advocate or the firm foundation. And a lot of these things were being bandied back and forth and discussed and sometimes in rather heated ways. So you have shed some light on some things for me. And I know that's uh, that's true as well for our listeners. Uh, and given us some ways to think about better paths and how to have better conversations, which is a big part of what Common Grounds Unity is about. So it, your your conversation is much appreciated. I know it's going to be a blessing. And I look forward to having you back sometime in the future to talk about this other big project you're working on. Great, Kevin. It's been an honor, and I so respect what all of you are doing big time. Thank you. Well, well thank you for being a part. Well, we want to invite you to be back for another Common Ground Unity podcast. We will have another conversation next week. If you look in the show notes, there are links to three audio messages from Jim Beavis at ACU. So we encourage you to take the opportunity to listen to those. Um, Also, I just want to mention we have a a vision to create and support gatherings of unity-minded Christians around the globe. Imagine the good news of these gatherings modeling the prayer of Jesus in our divided world. And by the way, I've had conversations just in recent weeks with uh, new groups, new gatherings starting in places, and it's exciting to see. So be a part of that. And if nothing more, grab a cup of coffee, go meet or get to know a believer in your community, in your town, 
that you haven't gotten to know and start building those bridges to be the answer to Jesus's prayer that we may all be one. If you're benefiting from this ministry, consider donating. Go to commongroundunity.org front slash donate. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.